at the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by the biggest superstar. A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades finally arrives. You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner and Alexander Gongay-Ruzic. Hey there, folks, and welcome back into the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 156 of Northern Football. Ben Steiner alongside Brendan Dunlop and Alex Gongay-Ruzic once again. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And guys, it's certainly, we were talking about it a little bit off air, but we're wanting to get together. Alex says he doesn't want to come to Toronto right now. I tried to pitch him on the fact that it has all kinds of weather right now. You know, it started off 17 degrees yesterday. It was minus six by the evening. It was it's an experience right now with Toronto weather. Yeah, you can understand why like people don't want to come here between the months of November and March, man. You, we live here and you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, I was walking the dog. I could have worn shorts in the afternoon and then I got caught wearing suede boots out to dinner. And it was snowing when I got out of the car, man. <laughs> I mean, that's come on. Ricky mistake in Toronto. No, and uh, never, never being ready. All I'm saying is if y'all come and, you know, visit your, in, in Ben's case, hometown. And I know, Brendan, for you, adopted hometown. I've been playing soccer outside all winter, been able to walk down to the beach, really able to do hikes. I'm just saying, like, you could do that sort of stuff here. I can't imagine when's the last time you've done any of those things over. In <laughs> but when it rains, it rains for like 24 to 36 hours. It, it, you see, it really I, doesn't. <laughs> like, like, people, you know, I got a on good rain jacket. I got Blundstones now. I got an umbrella. I feel pretty good in the rain, a lot better than I did before. I'm a true Vancouver with my blunnies, but like, that's a whole other story. Last you, year is the you, first you, time you, that I got to experience like summer Vancouver. And like, I get it when people say like the weather being outside. I'm like, oh, this is what you mean. Because every other time I've been here, not in June and July, it's England with mountains. Which is good. Come on. That that, that sounds good to me. (laughs) Silence the both of you. Like, yes. So what is it? (laughs) What do we say about Toronto? New York, Siberia? Siberia with (laughs) tall buildings? Or is that like the the prairies? Sorry to the prairies. I I, I mean, Alex, you know you're living full-time back in Vancouver when you've got the Blundstones now. And I had a little bit of a, you know, not growing up in Vancouver moment the other day, walking back from the gym. It started pouring rain and I wore a puffer jacket and I was walking back. And I got back and it was just like I was wearing a garbage bag that had like sucked onto my skin. It was the grossest feeling that you could possibly imagine stuck in the rain and like sleet uh, the other day. And all I could think was, you know, I, I had my rain jacket at back in my apartment that I could have worn. But no, I chose to wear the buffer. But those weather issues, certainly not uh, holding off North American soccer getting underway. Of course, we've had the CONCACAF Champions Cup underway. And now we have MLS underway as well. Lots of stuff since we last spoke. Another big week in Canadian soccer. The Canadian women's national team has been in action, having a hell of a time at the CONCACAF W Gold Cup. We chatted about their first game against El Salvador, but they've gone on to beat Paraguay and Costa Rica, topping this group stage as the U.S. women's national team lost to Mexico and has had a bit of a floundering of a tournament so far. Canada soccer also made a quick shift after Allison Walker left, hiring Kevin Blue as general secretary and CEO earlier today. And based on a video posted to the CSA Twitter, he seems to understand what he's getting himself into, and I'm sure we'll dig into that as well. Canada needed some drama to find out who they would face in the quarterfinals of the W Gold Cup as well, with Puerto Rico and Costa Rica tying on every tiebreaker, and it seemed like they had to pull together a last-minute drawing of lots, setting Canada up for another match against Costa Rica. 
And CONCACAF also announced the preliminary rosters for Nations League in the March window, including 57 players on Canada's Copa America playoff preliminary roster against Trinidad and Tobago. And the Canadian men's under-20s punched their ticket to the CONCACAF U-20 championships, sealed with a 3-0 win over Trinidad and Tobago with standout performances from Santiago Lopez, Kevon Tavernier, and several other Canadian youth players. And definitely a big week. I think we can dig into a few of those topics right off the top, and I think probably the most important one uh, is the new general secretary at Canada Soccer, Kevin Blue, who comes over from Golf Canada. I got to be honest, I didn't have any exchanges with him at uh, Golf Canada, um, but I just, I like the pedigree. I like the resume. I like that they've introduced him as CEO and general secretary. Um, it does feel like, you know, it's a, a step in the right direction for a program that the the first I heard the term was from John Herdman, you know, professionalizing the program. And he was talking specifically to you know the women's side and the men's side. But I mean, from top to bottom, Canada soccer hasn't truly operated that way. So this feels like a step in the right direction, Alex. Yeah, look, I think there's two things that are, you know, that are not ideal to talk about in this scenario. It's first off that, you know, maybe he wasn't the first choice. And also, secondly, we don't know too much about him. So it's hard to comment and say, oh, he'll come do this. He'll come do that. But I'm, you know, I'm encouraged, positively encouraged by the resume, right? Because that's all you can judge in this scenario. Sounds like Kevin Blue has a strong background in the financial side of sport. And I think that's really key because I think you're looking at what's plaguing uh, Canada soccer at the moment. It's not so much the playing side. Again, there's good players there. there you know, there's some good staff. You look at the women's team, you know, how Pev Priestman's been signed to an extension. You see the core there long-term. You imagine on the men's side with the World Cup, even if, you know, now they don't have a permanent head coach. You, again, we've said it. They will attract some good names for that job. It was just sometimes, well, will they accept the sort of financial packages, et cetera? Because that was a big thing that stood out from, from Blue's resume. Um, of course, he was the CSO at Golf Canada. But before, he was an athletic director at UC uh, University of California, Davis. Where there, his big, you know, his big achievements were on the business side, increasing their revenue there, really making them a force despite being one of the youngest uh, ADs in, in the NCAA Div 1 per his re- per the resume. And then also he had commercial experience at Stanford uh, doing some big things financially there. And I think that is really what stands out because over the last few years for Canada soccer, it's been all bankruptcy. Are they generating enough money to play friendlies? Are they making the most of this revenue opportunity that's there? It sounds like in his past stops, Blue's done a great job of, uh, of helping that in the college game. And I think that's encouraging. I think some of the judgment that some people have initially can come from the fact that he doesn't know Canadian soccer. He doesn't have experience within the game. And that can somewhat, I guess, reflect the comments of Dino Rossi last week that Canada soccer is not about soccer first right now. And that can be a concern in one aspect. But I actually think it's a positive that he's not from the soccer space because he brings a, a fresh pair of eyes. And it's something I said when Allison Walker was brought into the picture as well initially. Um, of course, she didn't end up taking on that role. And, and now that's Kevin Blues. But it's a different perspective. It's experience in not only the, the business realm, but the Canadian sporting realm and a sport that has also, you know, had a stronghold on the passion of the country, but also has gone through ups and downs based on national players performance. Um, because, you know, you can look at the success of, you know, Mike Weir a while back, or you can look at the success, uh, you know, more recently in Canadian golf. And they've had to deal with the ups and downs of contending on an international level. And with that comes the success business-wise. People, you know, will start watching Canadian golf a little bit more when those players are having success at, you know, major PGA Tour events, or, you know, Live Golf now in the picture as well, the Masters uh, earlier in the 2000s. And so 
he comes into a very similar situation with Canada soccer, where you see the national teams, people get excited about them, you know, when they're at the World Cup, when they're having success, you know, at the W Gold Cup, we see a little bit more attention. Um, and I think it's actually a very similar space. And so he brings that experience from Golf Canada, even though that was, you know, an individual sport. And then he also brings that business experience, which I think is critical in this role. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that he doesn't come with soccer experience. I totally agree with you. I, I I really like it. And I think I said on maybe my first show with you guys that it has taken outside eyes, outside perspectives to move the needle in this country. Herdman is maybe the, the biggest example because we've seen it on the pitch and you've seen it both on the women's side and the men's side. Actual tangible evidence. I think Mark Noonan's uh, American eyes and his his global view has taken CSB to a point that I don't believe that they would have gotten to before. I think it's very positive for the Canadian Premier League and in his short period you can there's tangible measurements of how much it's grown and it's changed and um this country never had a 24/7 soccer network before a, a Spanish uh, production company decided they want to to get into the full 24/7 broadcast game. So it does take uh, outside set of eyes, and I, I do think that you know from a, a business perspective, he has a, a pedigree that he's going to ask different questions than the people that have been there before. So I think that's a, a big needle mover. Yeah, I think now just the big three things that I'll have to watch out for. I think firstly. I think he, he has to be realistic about what he's stepping into. This is, you know, a very strange situation, especially financially. Again, it's encouraging to see his background, but also it's, it, you know, and NCAA is a bit of a different beast just because there's so much money involved there. And, you know, there's so much work you can, you can do on that side. It's the college experience that I think makes him great because in what other country is the head coach making cold calls asking for money, right? Herdman is one of very few people that would do that. Now this guy can do that. Why? Because he's already done that at a college level to turn that program into something that was printing cash. And I think that that's a fantastic um, attribute and someone that they probably wouldn't have found on their own. Uh, and maybe that was one of the telling things. Maybe that was one of the deciding factors because, you know, we've, we've joked and everyone you know has their own fantasy of like, oh, who could you hire? Is it worth an Henri? Is it worth a phone call to Jose? In my opinion, yes. And the only reason that you... The only way you can do that is by having uh, donations and money and having people like back you. And then, so that's just one example of how you would spend money in that scenario. Um, you have a guy who knows how to have those conversations, how to get people to write checks. That's exactly what this program needs. And exactly. So as long as he's realistic about this opportunity where, yeah, look, it's not that college system. Um, but, you know, there's still opportunity where, you know, there's avenues to create more revenue. Like, I mean, just off the top of our, you know, off our heads merchandise is the you know what's one of the big uh, big question marks more games at home how to maximize the revenue there but not in a fashion where you're just increasing ticket prices but where you're actually getting more games and in bigger stadiums at, at good prices i think those are all things to consider so that was number one i think number two as well is going to surround himself with some good soccer minds i think that will be like if you can get yourself a scenario where he's doing a lot of the business lifting and then maybe you get a president or maybe you get you know someone else who works alongside you who can kind of carry the ins and outs of that soccer side heck if you know maybe if you give a call to a dino rossi i feel like he'd be uh, someone who could definitely fill a lot of those shoes uh, and you know on that soccer side i think um you know that will that will be huge and i guess yeah really from there the the third thing that that uh kevin blue will, will need to do is just yeah, just, you know, be ready to hit the, the ground running, right? Just because that's the big thing. The fact he'll start in mid-March, um, he's got to get that national team coach. 
uh, sorted on the men's side. You got Copa America, the World Cup. And as long as he's, you know, ready to just hit the ground running, I think that's, uh, you know, those are all that he'll need to succeed in this job. I agree with you. His resume is business. We're all expecting him to be the business guy, surround himself with soccer people. I want to see ex-pros. I want to see national team alum in these senior premier positions. Okay. I know I'm biased. He's my friend. Craig Forrest deserves to be working for the national program. We would all be better off in this country if he had an actual impactful role at Canada Soccer. And he's not the only one. Uh, he's got a great job right now. He wouldn't be interested. But like Julian de Guzman is someone that would be, I think, equally as contributing in a, in a role like that. Um, you know, uh, also uh, now, I think the time has passed, but Diana Matheson would have been great. Uh, or maybe in the future, there's a, a space for someone like Diana Matheson who has a, an actual business degree as well. In a, in a football studies from the, the FIFA football execs program. Um, those are the minds that I think you, you need to have. People who have had experience on the pitch, have dealt with the program when things were bad, and have a vision of how the game can be and should be. Atiba Hutchinson and Christine Sinclair both yeah. retired recently, yeah. just throwing some names out there. I think it could also be interesting on that De Guzman point to wait a little while because let him get his you know executive learnings under him at New York and then come back into the picture at Canada soccer and help the national team. Um, because once he sort of understands the marketplace in terms of the professional game, maybe he can bring a little bit of that managerial side as well as the experience playing for Canada soccer in what was the dark days of that program, right? And so mm -hmm. he knows how bad it, it can get uh, in terms of on-pitch results. And he's going to learn how to run an organization uh, with the Red Bulls. Um, and I think that can be a positive to bring back into the picture. But one other point that did sort of jump out with me uh, with the Kevin Blue hiring was the fact that, you know, he was very transparent in a video that he posted to the Canada Soccer Twitter. And I don't want to go too deep into, you know, a 30 second video, but, you know, he admitted that Canada Soccer has a lot of problems that they've got to figure out. And that's a refreshing take from somebody at that organization, even if it's just his, not even his first day. Well, it ties in nicely to point one, right? Where you have to be realistic with what you're working with. And I think sometimes that's the, you know, the the hard part to be like, look, we got work to do. It's easy to come in like, yeah, there's a World Cup coming. Everything's sunshine and roses. We got this. Well, look, if it clearly hasn't been the case, don't sugarcoat it. I think, you know, fans, they, they know very well what's been going on. Um, so I, I like that attitude. If he can, if he can keep that up, I think that'll only be positive for the any sort of success he can uh, have in this role. Because yeah, like they say, when you're starting at the bottom, like as it kind of feels like at the moment, sometimes the easiest way to get up is you know you got to admit you're at the bottom. You got to realize like yeah, we're here. The only way we can go is up. Instead of being ah, oh, we're at the top. Because sometimes you you get a little delusional. You look at things you shouldn't be looking for. When you're at the bottom, it's survival mode. It's doing all those little things right. And by admitting it, that's a good start. And getting into the Canadian women's national team as well. They've taken care of business at the W Gold Cup. Three wins. They've scored 13 goals. Adriana Leon has had five of them. Shalina Zadorsky has two of them. Uh, and they've conceded none. Uh, so they've been in exceptional form to start off their group stage. And they topped the group. They finished as the highest seeded team as well, meaning they'll play eighth ranked Costa Rica, who, of course, could have been a different team. But based on that, you know, haphazard drawing of lots was certainly a weird situation last night the way that all played down uh but it is a fun sort of CONCACAF story that it seems like all of that was pretty well planned last minute to get that extra draw done at least they were transparent about it they didn't try to go in a tent so no one can see it like in the 2000 gold cup where i'll just flip a coin let holger go in the tent whoa 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 no 
<laughs> you're not going to go hidden here. Very Concacafy, but um, I'm disappointed that we get to see Costa Rica again in the quarterfinals. I don't know how much more they can actually learn from Las Ticas um, in what we're all expecting to be a Canada USA semifinal. But um, pretty flawless group stage, Alex. I mean, they got to experiment. It's not. I think you don't have too many opportunities where you get to put up numbers like that and tinker and experiment and play with the way Bev did. Yeah, I mean, look, first, before I dive into that, I just want to say watch Colombia and the U.S. game because Mexico caused all sorts of problems for the U.S. with their pressure and transition, and Colombia has that in their locker. So I just want to say it's we can't we can't fully write that in stone. It's not set in stone, eh? Okay, I'll see you in the comments section on CanadianSoccerDaily.com, buddy, complaining about the uh, the preview of what's to come in the semis. Okay, okay. No, 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 we'll see about that. But no, as, as for the what Canada has been doing and what they can control, it's been it's been pretty much about perfect, really, right? Like, you can only play those in front of you yeah you could have maybe said oh you know these aren't the toughest of tests i think they were three good tests costa rica very good concaf team paraguay solid convable team you know el salvador yeah this was their first showing and it, you know it kind of showed with how canada was dominating them but you'd be worried if canada struggled in any of these three games and look it wasn't all perfect they did struggle in the third game in the last 20 30 minutes when they switched formations something to watch out for but f- yeah for the most part they continue to find success in this 3-4-2-1. Uh, it seems to get the best out of them both defensively. I think the funnest stat I, I realize is I think they now have seven clean sheets in their nine games they've played since the World Cup because they essentially switched this formation right after the World Cup. Currently rocking a streak of six clean sheets in a row right now. Like they're, They've got it solid defensively, no matter if it's Zdorsky, Jade Rose, Buchanan, Gill. They're just rotating those four. You like to see that. D'Angelo and Sheridan as well been sharing the net and doing well. Uh, but then just the biggest thing has been the attack. Because that's always the question. Who's going to score the goals? Who's going to score the goals? Who's going to be the next Christine Sinclair? I mean, the, you look at Adriana Leon's been scoring for fun uh, as of late. Jordan Hoytema quietly, she's up to, I think, you know, five or six goals since the, the World Cup. Just quietly been been getting on the end of crosses and, and, you know, showing that big body she can be in the box, but also showing growth in her overall game. Olivia Smith shows that this first season in Portugal has really allowed her to elevate her game. Chloe Lacasse has just her confidence is oozing through her right now, the way she's running at defenders, causing problems, you know, being annoying. And those are just, you know, Nichelle Prince got injured in the first 45 minutes of this tournament. And she's someone who you definitely know would be would be cooking. It's at a point where you're looking at someone like a Deanne Rose who hasn't been bad. Like she's been solid up front for Canada, but just because everyone around her is doing so well that you're like, whoa, Deanne Rose's stock has dropped a little bit. Did it with Evelyn Vienne, who's having a great season. She's having a bit of a quieter Gold Cup. Not a bad Gold Cup, just a quieter Gold Cup. The performances of everyone around her is just, you know, it's it's it's, it's great to have because those are that's everything we wanted from Canada. We wanted them to keep being solid defensively, keep working with this new formation, score goals. They've done all that. Yeah, I think it's it's been critical to have this group stage as well because not that the opponents have been bad or necessarily you know as strong as an Australia or a, or a USA you know whether you're talking USA at this point or USA at their peak, but they've been testing enough opponents that Canada can tinker and can figure out those those different options. You know, you can look back to the last twenty minutes of the game against Costa Rica when they, you know, shifted for formations and it didn't work. They did struggle, but it was enough to shine a light on what those struggles could be, what that formation could look like. And Canada has had success in, in 
the way that they've been playing lately. And, you know, I think we're seeing that through the personnel that they're playing at the moment. But then we're also seeing some players that have had an impact on this team not have that same impact right now. I think of uh, a Julia Grosso, um, who has kind of, you know, fallen out of the contention in that midfield because it's been working so well with Jesse Fleming and, and Quinn. Um, that Grosso, having a good season, still a quality player, can definitely play a role on the team. But it just seems like the best option doesn't include her at the moment. And that's a, a testament to the depth of the Canadian team. But also, you know, is the team the best not having Grosso on the pitch playing in a system that, that works to her? So I think there, there can be a balancing act there. But it's working right now, and I see no reason to, to change it too much. I think Bev Priestman has one of the toughest jobs in football. Because if you talk about the midfield exclusively and where Grosso's fallen, like to leave the gold medal hero off the team is would be a very difficult decision. And I'm not saying that Grosso deserves to be left off the team, but does Simia Wujo not deserve to be on the team? Because she she, she needs minutes uh, and and a place on the pitch, and she's and she's proven that she's earned it. And there's like so much to her game, um, and like Olivia Smith, like it's just getting started. Uh, and what excites me, in addition to a lot of the names that, that Alex just rattled off there that can score goals and, and are exciting to watch, is how the, the fearlessness that Smith and Abujo particularly play with that just makes them you, like unpredictable. You never really know like what's going to happen. And you're you're not truly surprised when they do something spectacular because you just you're you've grown to expect it to come. You just don't know when and how it will. And it always seems to be quite exciting when it does. Yeah, and I love the the Grosso point because it actually ties in, funnily enough, to a tweet I put out yesterday where I was kind of looking at like stocks up, stocks down, right? Like who's yeah. kind of after this group stage, who's going up, who's going down. And I threw Grosso's name in the down section. It was a bit of a hot topic because, look, Grosso hasn't been playing bad. She had a great first uh, or I think second half it was against El Salvador. You know, she had some good moments uh, in, in this Costa Rica game before the formation switch kind of just killed all of Canada's momentum. But that's kind of like the point with all the forwards too, like a Rose or Deanne Rose in that mix. Uh, right now, Canada's at a point where players aren't falling out of favor because they're struggling. They're not used to this or that. They're just, they're falling out or saying falling down the depth chart because those behind them are stepping up and taking their places. And that sort of competition is amazing because A, it pushes everyone, right? Like it pushes Jesse Fleming. It pushes Simeon Wujo, Quinn, to know that Julia Grosso is right on all of our collective tales and wants to win a starting spot. In my eyes, Julia Grosso is a starter. She's someone who should be starting. She's great for Juventus, but if I'm making, if I'm picking a team tomorrow, say it's Canada, us, it's an Olympic semifinal. Does Grosso start? I don't think so. Right. And I think that's a luxury to have where, yeah, I think in the end Grosso will make the Olympic squad. So in her case, it's not so much an issue because I think at this point, I feel like we'll have to see what happens with Desiree Scott's recovery, but it just feels like this is the midfield four we're going to see at the Olympics. But man, up front, that's a tough discussion because with 18, you're only probably bringing five of those forwards, six of those forwards, and you're still not talking about a Janine Becky, and you're not talking about all these these other names. So no, I think it's definitely a win from Canadian perspective. And like you mentioned, so tough for Priestman because yeah, how do you pick between with how the midfield is? It's Two offensive eights, two defensive eights. You got Quinn and Awujo in the defensive category, Fleming and Gross in the offensive category. How do you pick Gross over Fleming or Fleming over Gross? That's tough. And now you're starting to see it with how Awujo's playing. 
How do you pick between Awujo Quinn or Quinn Awujo Quinn? So good on the ball, so good defensively. But Awujo showing that, hey, I, I can do that job too. And I got the, you know, she's got this size about her, this ability to cover ground, this intelligence as well. Like, yeah, those are those are such tough decisions to have. And I think now the big step is we've seen that a lot of these players can play in these, you know, quote unquote easier games. I'm really curious to see how the knockouts go. I really am hoping for a US matchup because I think this would be very telling. Uh, to see how if an Awujo can, I, I, and I, I genuinely hope if they reach that situation where it's Canada US, where we see Awujo thrown in, Smith thrown in, and seeing these kids, because I think it would be really nice to see how they react in those situations. Here's a hot take prediction: If it's the US in the semis, and Canada get there, Julia Grosso is definitely starting. If it's Colombia, I don't think she starts. Interesting. I, I can see it because, again, big game players, maybe you do see a Grosso step up. Uh, maybe after not having played as much, maybe you see a, a you know, a Buchanan Zadorsky Gill back three instead of a Jade Rose, who, again, Jade Rose deserves a look. So it'll be interesting to see how Priestman balances it. Personally, I'd love to see her throw the kids in against the U.S. because I think that's the best way to really see can they do this at the Olympics? And I think that would be the, 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 the best case. Hmm. That Olympic draw, of course, is also coming up on, on March 20. So that's coming up pretty soon as well. And Canada will figure out their pathway to defending gold, which is, you know, three years later is still a surreal thing to say that they're going into the Olympics as defending gold medalists in women's soccer. But getting into your questions, a question from at WSoccerCA. Thoughts on performances against Paraguay and Costa Rica and is Leon's favorite player right now? We already did touch on her other question, the uh, Simi Wujo and Jesse Fleming Perry. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, for, for Adriana Leone, it's been great to see the confidence with which she's playing. Um, she's just the way she strikes the ball, her instinct for goal. She's just a pure goal scorer. And I think that's huge because, again, how many times we've been like, who's going to score the goals for Canada? Who's going to score the goals for Canada? You get Adriana Leone the ball, she will score goals for Canada. Uh, she, I think she might be Canada's best striker of the ball, although uh, Olivia Smith is uh, – you know, giving her a good run for her money in that category. So, yeah, it's excited to see how Leon continues to grow in the system uh, because I think there's, she does a lot of good things in the system. She's good at cutting inside as an inside forward, finding those soft channels, you know, creating shooting opportunities. One thing to watch for is that she's a bit shoot first, which is fine. That's the player she is. But I think there are a few times where you'd like to see her combine because she can do it. We've seen some of the goals where she's combining, being involved. But sometimes she just gets the ball in the box and it's shoot, 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 which, you know, when there is a better option to play off, you'd like to see that. But other than that, that's, if, if you're complaining that your striker who's scoring goals is is shooting too much, I don't think that's the, the worst case scenario in the, in the world. So there's an observation that I've had over the last six months with Adriana Leon, and you've just confirmed it with what you've just said, that she right now very much reminds me of peak Christine Sinclair, maybe even go say 2011 to 2015 in the sense that if she gets the ball on the edge of the 18 yard box or in the 18 yard box, you would, would be hard pressed to bet against her fine in the back of the net. And uh, you would almost guarantee uh, the odds would be minus a thousand that she's going to take the shot. <laughs> and I feel like that's, you know, not that she's trying to fill those shoes by any means, uh, but that her and that their games are different, but she reminds me of, of Sinclair in that type of way. Well, I think it's huge, too, because, again, it's nice to have that Ford who wants to shoot. Again, that's why I say for better or for worse, because, again, there are some times, again, just to be nitpicky, 
it's not always the best option. I think there was one that really made me laugh yes, uh, against Costa Rica yesterday where she had the ball, there's a pass on it, she just rocketed at a Costa Rican defender. And you're like, okay, maybe there you'd like to see the cutback or the cross. But you know what? For a Canadian team, that again, the before wasn't just who's going to score, it's who's going to get chances. Having someone who wants to make chances, wants to shoot, I, uh, you're never going to complain. And yeah, I like that idea that at least you know now in a big game, if the ball falls to Leon, she's going to accept responsibility. And sometimes that's what you need from your forwards, that willingness to, yeah, I'll take an audacious shot. Might it come off? No, but at least I'm willing to trust myself and back myself uh, in those situations. She can finish as well. And I think that's an important thing. She's not just shooting at, you know, clear chances and missing the net because, you know, that that has been an issue for the women's national team in the past, uh, where you get a striker in an opportunity and, you know, it just doesn't turn into testing the goalkeeper or, you know, even testing the, the frame of the net. Um, but that's... Anybody in particular you're thinking of? Anyone tall, number nine in particular you're thinking of when you say that, or...? Evelyn Vienne, in particular. Oh, oh um, I was... Okay. Yeah. I mean, Has Evelyn she got Vienne enough recently. minutes to miss many chances? Yeah. It seems like she hasn't minutes. taken the, the, the most of her chances lately. Um, Jordan Heidema, <laughs> over the years, uh, has also struggled with that. Um, and, and that's why I, I imagine you'd, you'd probably be thinking of. But, you know, Evelyn Vienne is someone that I've seen that, you know, potential from. And she hasn't necessarily impressed in a lot of her minutes with the national team, I've thought. Um, but Heidema, you know, it's taken years for her to get to a point where she's finishing or connecting like she did with Jesse Fleming on, on that chance yesterday. Um, and it's nice to see that flourishing now, but it's taken a, a long time. She's still young. She's still got a long time left to, you know, sort things out, but she started with the national team when she was just a, a young teenager. Um, and it's been a long time to get up to, you know, a confidence in finishing for her. And that's something Adrian Emma Leon has at this point. Was it Paraguay, the volley to the first goal it was against Paraguay, right? Well, she's like near the top of the ball. Yeah. She yeah. had the ball bounced her and she just smacked it. What a goal. Yeah, I, honestly, she could she could be Canada's most impactful player at the Olympics. She could yeah, be hundred percent. Because look, this Canadian team, the way they're going, they can defend again. That's huge. This back three, they can defend. But the question always is, who's going to score? And I think the fact is that you can turn the lay on. Heck, you can turn to Hoytema now. I think it's important again not to forget the contributions she's had. What I really liked about her game recently for Canada is her runs. Because sometimes I was, I think the thing that Hoytema struggled the most with as a young player who was really tall, and it was probably something due to her age group, it's really easy to just go to the back post. You're six inches taller than your defender, stand there, cross to you, spam in headers. Great. When you go up to the professional game, A, there's players who might be similar height to you. They know how to push off of you. They know how to defend height. You have to be smart with your movement. You have to be smart with your runs. And I think what we're seeing from Hoytema now, she's figuring out that off-ball movement of, oh, here's how I fake a run and go back post when I'm so deadly. Here's how, on like on her goal against Costa Rica, where I know how to cut my run under the blind side of a defender to stay on side, but then smash into space, be wide open, not at home. I think because Hoytema, she could always finish. She could always score goals, but I think that was always the big you know, issue translating up from the younger levels where again, you're just, she was just so tall, so physically dominant. It's the movement. It's the smarts. It's the, that side of her game. And I think we're seeing with their holdup play too. Some of the passes she's been spraying around this group stage have really surprised, you know, many to, to see this, this style of play. So I think it shows sometimes too, that in Leon's case as well, I think we're seeing a maturity in how you score goals. And I think that's 
that's you know going to be interesting to see how that develops for someone like a Smith as well, who she's just eight, she's just nineteen, right? Like she's going to be someone who what's what's exciting with her she has all the technical tools so man when she figures out those movements of how to disguise her shots more how to get get them off quicker those are the little things that you realize with yeah even someone like Koidemo has been in the national team for like eight nine years even just now at 22 23 she's finally starting to get those little intricacies in her game that's making her so so tough to defend if she struggles uh with seattle right that's they've officially called themselves the, the seattle rain now right just want to make sure, again. make sure I got the terms correctly. Yeah. If uh, Jordan Heidemann struggles in Seattle and we start talking about, oh, no, should she look at another club? Just she needs to go to Portugal. She needs to go to Portugal. She'll, she'll like, she'll, her game will evolve. She'll score. She'll have boatloads of confidence and she'll be lethal for the national team. I'll say that or uh, I'd love to see her <laughs> in England. I'd love to see her in England. I think the, that would be another learning. The physicality handling that, that big body in England, I think, could also be uh, something to watch. I was going to say, like, you have the bias there, but I think that would be a step down for her. Um, and maybe a step down if she struggles at Seattle is, is what she needs. Um, mm. But I do think that figuring it out in the end of SL or, or taking a step up and testing yourself in one of the major European leagues would be an interesting test for, for Heidema. I don't know whether England would be the right place, just considering the struggles Canadians have had there for whatever reason, like, you know, you know, Janine Becky, Jesse Fleming, it just hasn't worked out for whatever reason for Canadians and Americans for that matter. Like, you know, other than Lindsay Horan, there's not really been an American that's made a significantly major impact over in Europe. That's a good point. And like, or, or, or a Canadian. Me, so me officials look, it was looking good before her knee, unfortunately gave out on, on her and Katarina Macar Macario as well had before the knee injury. But yeah, it's true yeah. where there's not like most of the U S standouts are, uh, in the uh, NWSL, but I don't know. I think it depends because I agree with the Portugal strikers' confidence thing with Smith and with Lacasse and with Aladu. For what it's worth, I just think if you're NWSL, stay or go to an England or go to a, like a top club. But I think some uh, there are definitely some names who could use a Portugal. Like if you know, let's say like if Jade Rose wants to make that step pro, or if some of those younger players uh, who you know who. If an Annabelle Chukwu, for example, wants to go pro, oh, yeah. I'd love to see some of those. I, that's it. I'd love to see a lot of players between that 18 to 22 range start in Portugal, get reps as a pro, get comfortable, and then make the jump up. Because that's what we've seen is that if you make that jump straight up to an England, you know, for every Julia Grosso goes to a top Italian club or, you know, a Deanne Rose hit the ground running with Reading at the time, there have been a lot of stories where it's gone the opposite. And maybe that, that Portugal route can serve as more of a transitory experience uh, and then hey maybe the portuguese league will become one of the top leagues based on the way it's trending and that'll be a whole different story ben's point though that and i hadn't truly considered it that similar to the men's game north american outfield players haven't really made a big impact in england you know jesse fleming uh, did uh across a, a few title winning seasons but like never held down the starting spot uh, i would say you know we would push that she was a star but i bet if you were talking to a lot of English supporters, they would just describe her as an impactful contributing player, but not label her an actual star. Um, to me, like Alex Morgan didn't do anything at Spurs and came back. And that to me is the, the biggest surprise. Uh, the game was also, that league was very different uh, pre-pandemic. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting that North American players don't, don't seem to be uh, the stars that they are on this side of the pond over there. 
I, I, I think of uh, Carly Lloyd as well. I mean, she, she goes yeah. over to Manchester and, you know, didn't have the success that she's had at Gotham. And, you know, you can go through a list of starring World Cup champion U.S. women's national team players, and they just haven't necessarily had that success really anywhere in Europe, not just England. Yeah, well, I think it's one thing. I think it's more relevant to Canada in this in this discussion just because the one thing with the U.S., they do tend to get, you know, with the allocation order, or, you know, how the, the allocation salaries, as it were, at the time and some of the offers it is also just more lucrative to stay home in the U.S. for the NWSL players, um, and they encourage more American talent. I think some of them are realized they just realize like, oh, I can just be a star in the NWSL, get my minutes, you know, get good money. Whereas you know, you're going to England and taking that risk. It is also something where I don't, I just don't think we see as much of that. But it's going to be interesting from a Canadian perspective because, yeah, they're not so much guaranteed those spots in the NWSL. Yeah, the top players will have a pick of their teams, like the Flemings, the Beckys, you know, the the Hoytemas, the the Quins, and all that. But you know, as we've seen, there's been Canadians who've been drafted by NWSL teams and struggled to get any sort of minutes, right? So that's the the question of is it worth it to make that jump to Europe? I always say, uh, if you're willing to take it, you'll 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 get that opportunity. So I think that's also been one thing in the American debate that will really see a shift that they're realizing that, oh, Europe's starting to catch up. Maybe we should send more players there. And I think, again, it's unfortunate they've dealt with so many injuries. I think Macario and Fischl are two examples of, on the flip side, the positives that that could bring to the U.S. pool to have those sorts of jumps. Macario is so good. What a like what a talented player. Our last question on the women's national team from Afrikaans. Based on group performance, which player's stock is on the rise and which players do you think are at risk of missing that top 18? I know we've touched on it, but if you had to pick a few players that probably aren't going to be in that Olympic picture, who would you say? Well, rise, Zdorsky's stock has risen. I don't think that uh, we expected, uh, you know, one thing to see on the score sheet, but defensively, like how solid they were, uh, you, you wonder, like, why would you change it? Like, why, why change anything, right? And I don't think that was the that was the case coming in. So her stock has definitely risen. As at, to Alex's point, uh, to to find someone whose stock maybe has dropped, but perhaps unfairly, Grosso definitely would be the standout. Um, I think the, you know, from that first game, we're all raving about the movement and and Lacasse, but I would say that maybe her stock has just stayed level, neutral. From the from the impact on the the uh, after that, I, I wouldn't say there was any real movement to to her stock. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, I think the biggest thing is the composition of the roster. I think that's going to be the one that intrigues me the most. I'm looking at it now. What I bet is we'll likely see, I think we see all four center backs just because they're going to play a back three, right? So you're going to need that four center back. And what's good is that Jade Rose can play fullback. So I think that's what's going to cement her spot in that, uh, in that, that final Olympic squad. But then there, it's like, what do they do? Do they go three fullbacks or do they go two fullbacks knowing that Rose can be a third fullback, right? Do they? I think they go four CMs for sure, but do they bring a fifth if they they bring two fullbacks? And I think they bring at least five forwards. So knowing that, I definitely think, yeah, like a Grosso stops maybe dipped, uh, or dipped a little, but I think she still will make it in um, to that Olympic squad. I think a Lacasse's stock has gone up. It's hard to imagine her missing out. I think Olivia Smith stock's gone up. I think she sneaks in as a wild card. Like sometimes like in a small squad, yeah, you need specialists who can, or sorry, you need versatile players. You can play fullback, center back, can play center mid and attack. And, but I think you also need room for a few just specialists. And I think Smith can bring that. 
I definitely think Leon's stock uh, has gone up. And I think Obujo, Obujo has been one of the, the the quiet risers where, look, it's it's going to be tough. But with how Desiree Scott hasn't played essentially in a year, because I think Scott in, in Canada's best team, she's still right in that mix to start. But I wonder if uh, for her, she just might end up being an alternate where someone who's ready to step up if need be for the Olympics, but might not crack the final 18. And that's just also because Obujo's shown that she's ready for, for prime time. And it's not just the Canadian women's national team having success at the moment. Canada's U20 men's national team got the job done at the U20 CONCACAF championship qualifier, cruising through their group with three wins, scoring 15 goals and conceding none in wins over Dominica, St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Trinidad and Tobago. They'll now play at the CONCACAF championships this July, which will be in Mexico, where they and 11 other teams will look to grab one of the four spots CONCACAF has up for grabs at the U20 World Cup in Chile in 2025. When you look at this tournament, I think there were definitely a few standouts. Santiago Lopez comes to mind. Kevon Tavernier, the Forge youngster, certainly was a standout as well. But I think a lot of the excitement is surrounding Santiago Lopez in the way that uh, he really jumped onto the the picture this tournament. Yeah, it was a good, uh, very good breakout, so to say, for Santiago Lopez. Not so much that, you know, he's it was a breakout surprise, I guess, for those who knew him. But for those who don't, which was pretty much... No one, at least in Canadian circles, because his eligibility kind of came out of nowhere. It was a huge surprise to see what he is. Uh, again, I'm not surprised to see that technically he was a standout. He's playing in a Liga MX senior team in Pumas already. He's got appearances. But it was the intangibles that really impressed me. This kid already looks like a leader. He has a bit of swagger, a, a bit of je ne sais quoi about him already. And I think he, he combined with his technical ability, he was he really stood out just with he was scoring goals, but then he was first one in a scrap for his teammates if they got tackled too hard. He scored against Trinidad and Tobago in Trinidad and Tobago. He's going there, cupping his ears to the fans, telling them to, to get up. Like, I love that sort of just shithousery, right? Like, sometimes you don't see that from young kids. They can be a bit timid. You know, they have they have skills, but they don't necessarily always have the confidence for it. He has the confidence. Otherwise, really, I think this was a tournament for the forwards. Unfortunately, the defenders weren't put under much pressure, but they showed well. They did their job, got the clean sheet. But this was really a tournament for the forwards. It was Lopez stood out, Miles Morgan scored a lot of goals. Looks like he can be a quality finisher, some great one-time finishes. Kamani Stewart-Baines, who I think is someone to watch this year with Colorado, looks so dynamic uh, anytime he got on the ball. Uh, you, you look at Tavio Cicciarelli, he's got a you know good short build where he knows how to glide through defenders and, and finish in tight spots. Um, Kawan Tavernia as well, such a good dribbler of the ball. And of course, the midfield pivot of Givan Badwell and Alessandro Biello really impressed after good U17 cycles. Those two uh, do a lot of good things on the ball. So it was definitely a tournament for those who are a bit more active in possession, but that's good because I think this Canadian team, if they're going to have any chance of doing well this summer, they need to score goals because defensively, they're usually always fine at these tournaments. They just don't score. It's crazy that Canada hasn't been at the U20 World Cup since hosting in 07. Like, it'd be awesome if they could make a real impact and, uh, you know, puts uh, a few guys put their names really on the map and and uh, as Canadian players have done so in the past I, I think it, it's critical that they qualify for the world World Cup uh, because when you look at sort of Canada's success or lack of success therefore over the last several cycles of youth tournaments it's not been good men's and women's sides they've not had good performance performances internationally uh, when it comes to the youth level and getting the best out of you know what is a seemingly promising generation of Canadian young players would be great. And it seems like Andrew Olivieri has a good handle on what this team needs and how this team needs to play to have that success 
moving forward. And I'm confident after watching them at this, you know, lighter tournament in terms of a, a qualifier for the CONCACAF championships that they can go out at the CONCACAF championships and potentially play themselves into a world cup spot Four spots makes it, you know, seemingly doable. It's not just, you know, a make the final of the tournament to go through that we see so often in CONCACAF. So there's definitely more options there to, to make the tournament. And I think that has to be the baseline for this Canadian team. Yeah. And I think this U20 cycle uh, age cycle is going to be very crucial because where they lagged again was professionally, what the huge game difference is at the U20s is like, you just look at some of the players, right? Like you had guys like Erling Holland when he dominated the U20s a few years ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, like you have all these players who are just playing at top teams who go to these tournaments, whereas for Canada, they barely had like two players playing professionally. And I think what's exciting is you look at this squad that they just had, like nine, ten of them have already got pro minutes under their belt. They left Luke DeFugerel at home, right? Who did? They weren't able to secure him. TJ Tahid has promised they didn't. They didn't call him up. Uh, Kadeem Kane, like they could easily put out a squad of 15, 16 guys playing professionally, and that's huge because that's the CPL giving a lot of these 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds a chance to play professionally. And also, we're we're seeing a lot of guys make their jump in MLS Next Pro and MLS. You combine that with guys in European academies slowly starting to push their way in. I think this U20 age group is, is one that needs to, I think over the next five, 10 years, I'd like to see them start making World Cups regularly again because with all this talent that's playing in the CPL and MLS, uh, the, the, there's no reason why after Mexico and US, of course, are always going to be the powerhouses with the, the, the sheer number of players they're able to pull in. There's no reason why Canada can't be a, a, a third option, uh, especially with now all the professional uh, experience they're starting to accumulate with these young players. You've got that pathway now that these players can develop in because what we've seen in the past where, you know, players could be at European academies or North American academies and they're only playing against their age group. They're only playing, you know, Europe or stuff like that, where you're not getting tested in high pressure environments, professional environments, full time environments for the most part that now they are. There is that pathway now for player development, whether it be in a professional, like fully professional men's game like the CPL or a bit of a feeder league like MLS Next Pro, uh, which is still, you know, better than we've, we've seen in the past, but they're not just coming from MLS academies at this point. These players are playing a full schedule. They're not playing showcase tournaments or any of that stuff that we've seen in the past. And I think that is only a good thing uh, for the Canadian and, and American teams for that matter, that that structure is now there. And I think it's also important to look at this U20 group in particular and see the potential of role players at the 2026 World Cup, because some of these players that are, you know, in their late teens um, will be 22, 23 come the, the World Cup uh, and potentially, you know, be playing some significant roles for Canada if they're able to settle into some European or, or North American first teams. So it's intriguing to look at them. And, you know, you think 2026 World Cup, you can even think down the line with this group with the 2030 World Cup as well, that it's an important group right now. Uh, but as you said, over the next five, 10 years, you want to see this group having success at the youth levels, not just the group that is currently on the roster, but moving forward as well. Alex, everything we got on the go right now in the soccer world, this guy's got his eye on Saudi Arabia. Like, pump the brakes. <laughs> Didn't you have enough dress-up dinners here to, like, think about other things? You're thinking about the 2030 roster, Ben? Come on, man. Well, I was standing around at this one dinner shooting photos, and I all I had to do. Someone was said, "Hey, Saudi Arabia, what do you think Canada's going to look like in 2030? What's the midfield?" Oh, I'm I'm really glad you asked here, Mordecai. Let me tell you, look, this is what I'm thinking. That's what happened. <laughs> Not quite. I was just kind of in my mind. I'm like, ah, you know, going through the roster, thinking, oh, you know, 
he's 27 he's he might be around like uh but yeah i, I was thinking about that too much this week for my own good i said like the foresight right uh, it certainly will be interesting uh, to see that the uh, World Cup make its way back to the uh, the Arab world as well after Qatar. And uh, Brendan, I imagine you'll, you'll be hosting that World Cup as well, uh, back where you, you first hosted a World Cup. I will definitely, yeah, I would love to be there. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I'll be there. The uh, I was just talking with some friends actually last night who I worked the Asian Cup with and the World Cup about uh, Arab Cup will be in Qatar in 2025 but not in the same winter cycle that i just did asia cup january february it's it's november december um so that'll be uh, a little disruptive to the the club calendar worldwide over here <laughs> i just would love to go to the middle east once in my life pretty much one of the only places that in australia where i still have to make a visit yeah, I haven't done Australia. I'm, I'm sure the game will take us out there, my man. There'll, there'll be uh, there'll be something that gets us uh, gets us out there. More Canadian players in more places. Yeah, you know, actually, uh, I've heard that uh, there's a couple of Canadian players that we may not suspect would be thinking about the Middle East that uh, are uh, considering Middle Eastern offers. Um, so uh, I won't say too too much, but uh, some players that that we've we've talked about a lot and potentially being on the move and. Things not working out for them at their club. Um, people are paying attention to the Middle East, and uh, there might be some offers on the table that we talk about in the next uh, next silly season. Already a couple of Canadians over there as well. Uh, dual nationals for the most part. Um, one of my high school buddies that I used to play soccer with at lunch and then played on uh, a varsity team with is playing with Kareem Benzema now, which is certainly something that you wouldn't expect watching Champions League at lunch and watching Benzema on TV. And now he's playing with him over in Saudi Arabia. Uh, making stupid money wow. and pretty impressive. Hey, Pacific yeah. FC's Ahmed Al Gamdi. Come on, give a shout to Pacific. Yes, yes, true. Also, <laughs> also the right winger on my high school team, uh, which was a be- beauty to pass to. Wait, uh, just so yeah. I know, this is the same guy, or there's two guys that you know out there. No, 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 no this no, is the guy. Just Ben mentioned the name. So I was like, let's at least give him his flowers in yeah. Pacific as well, because he spent a year in 2019. For those who uh, were watching the league back then, man, he was he was fun to watch in those beautiful purple and also the teal, which they need to bring back. By the way, kits that Pacific had in year one. They should bring back. You know, teal. Pacific sent a helicopter to pick him up for games and bring him over because he was still going to school full time in Vancouver, and they would the club sent a helicopter to pick him up fly him over for games he played like off the top of my head i think it was a like just you know half a dozen games for them because he was such a young player he never really moved over to victoria until the summer um but he was going to school full-time and you know he'd be in geology class at at noon and then be playing for pacific in the canadian championship uh, against calvary later in the day so it was definitely a weird existence for for him to be around and he was also playing on the the high school first 11 um while he was playing for pacific as well and i i don't know whether you know both sides kind of knew about that i don't know whether pacific was so happy with him you know going out and playing in the bc high school league uh but it was nice to be on because i had ahmed on the right wing and then i had uh two center backs that were playing whitecaps academy at the time uh and then i had my left winger who was playing with fusion uh which became tss rovers um so like that was a good team. I really enjoyed that team. The only reason I was on that was I played goalkeeper and there was nobody else. You were the goalkeeper. I, I the way you were describing it, I'm thinking like you're the, playing in the middle of the park. You were a six. I thought you were gonna say. <laughs> yeah, then, no, it's my goal kicks part of the wings. 
So you went from that just star-studded team to a few years later, you were pinging me balls at the at the docks out in Toronto there in, uh, in our five-a-side. Eh? Funny how things change. See, this is the Canucks abroad talk that I like. Like, we, Who thought that we'd be talking about Aliti had dual national eligible Canadians? And yet, here we are talking about your buddy from high school that you played with who was taking Rob Friend's helicopter to go play for Pacific uh, once a week or 13 times in a season. And now he's uh, he's training with Kareem Benzema every day, making one twenty eighth of what Benzema's making uh, at Al Ittihad. Wow, what a life, man! Yeah, it, it, it's it's wild. I, I talk to him every now and then. Um, Get him on the show. The Let's... I'll ask him. He says he probably has the quality to you know move up to a higher level, but why would he? <laughs> but that, but yeah, you, but you know that's not for everybody. Like, of course, Get talk he, to he, him he, and he, ask it, how much that is. Yeah. I bet you he's making good money for what we would call soccer money in this country but over there he's he's uh his fancy car is probably a club car he's he's not out there buying a rolls royce with uh with his playing cash there's a huge gap between the no, players not, not whose names play, we not, know not with his playing when no, you're there's, paying guys 200 million a year there are, there is going to be a gap yes yeah. <laughs> i would reckon that your buddy is making what we would call good mls money for Alex, uh, what do you think? 2010, 2012? Uh, I would say, you know, definitely, I don't know, I, maybe not DP money, but definitely uh, in that sweet spot where you're not earning a league min, but you're, you're, you're getting a couple, you're getting a six-figure deal, I imagine. I remember Jordan Hamilton, his first deal, he was like the Adidas next gen, right? And if I'm not mistaken, he might have been can- the first Canadian that was uh, an Adidas next gen player, and he was on 60. And that was the that was the league minimum. There's definitely dudes in Saudi Arabia that are making like just a hundred thousand Canadian. Still not that. No, you all disagree. Like a million guys making. Everyone's making a million. I mean, I'm just no position to to to, to understand the the salary disparity. Other than again, you see what they're throwing out at the stars, but that's just right. That's leagues, right? You throw out the. You got MLS where Messi's making. He's he's got the money. He's got the Apple revenue deal. He's got an Adidas deal. And then you got you know you got dudes who are still making sixty seven k a year, right? That's just uh, the reality of. That. And you, heck, you see it in Europe too, right? Where you hear some of these guys are making in some leagues, right? The disparity of oh yeah, PSG Mbappe is pretty much he's he's meeting with the French president to try and keep him around there. And then meanwhile, you got same teams in Liga making got players making a hundred K because they just came out of Liga and that's all they can play. When Sebastian Javinko left Juventus, he was the highest paid Italian sports person on the planet. And he did the deal in January, right? Inked the deal in January before he joined TFC. Uh, whether he waited to the summer, I can't remember, or he just came in March, but he did the deal and he was still playing with Juve. And he's making more than anybody on his team and any Italian in sports on the planet. And he wasn't even the highest paid guy in MLS at the time. That's wild. I mean, I think back to... Juve room hated him. (laughs) I think back to the Beckham days in MLS, and there was the the TFC player that uh, just completely took him out. Uh, and it seemed like every time that Beckham was on the pitch, there was going to be a player that would just take him out and you know be frustrated that he was making all this money, basically controlling the league on whatever he wanted. But we haven't necessarily seen that with Messi. Um, but I just remember those Beckham days where it was like, you know, every time he stepped on the pitch, it seemed like he had a bounty on his head. Mm. Who's the TFC guy? That's a, that'd be a fun I'm game. Just- how much, how much time we got? Let's go run through those those names. Gabe Gala. 
Oh. Aleko Eskandarian. I'll look it up right now. Was it Danny Dickio back in the day? It was that Dicchio era. Would, yeah, Dickio would have uh, would have would have slid in. Yeah, a, a, a forward tackling David Beckham. Yeah, Dickio would have found himself in that position if he if he could. He would have slid in for a tackle. Not on yeah, turf though. Was Rohan play, Rick play, still playing back in those days? Play, played for TFC, but uh, was with Dallas at the time. Uh, Adrian Serio. There's your. I think. Oh, ah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, Adrian would yeah. totally do it. Yeah, yeah, man, Sirius got some stories. He's got some stories. He, uh, yeah, him, Dero, like that era of when TFC was starting, like, you know, those guys were established MLS players that have, you know, see, had seen everything in the American game, and it just changed overnight when when Beckham arrived. And luckily for us, you know, now it involves Canada. It's it changed for the better, obviously, the league. But yeah, different world, man. Now coming up on twenty years ago. And we'll also jump into some Canadian men's national team stuff. One month out from Trinidad and Tobago, 57-player preliminary squad released last week. Uh, and a few new what is the faces point of that? on that roster as well. What, what is the point of a 57-player preliminary? It's just, you know what it is? It's for them to tell, hey, guys, guys, in the past, we we missed a lot of dudes. But look, look, we got our eyes on 57 dudes. Look, we're, our, our network is better. We have resources. It's transfer market. But we have resources, guys. Look at this list. Yeah, it is definitely headlines the absurd because I think you don't need more than 30 because I get having a preliminary squad in case of injuries. But yeah, it is kind of a a useless experience to put 57 dudes on a list like two weeks before you even announce the final squad just as a like, here's who we can call up. So, you know, figure out who who might who might get a, a nod. It is a bit of a f- elementary one, but... I'm not going to be mad because it allows nerds like us to see some of the new names. Like, yes, the, he, he's on their radar. We're happy with that. Or, ooh, this dual national, like Daniel Jebison was left out from this list after being included in past lists. Like, ooh, okay, things, you know, maybe aren't so good on those fronts. Yeah, bro's got long COVID or something, right? Yeah, he's been dealing with some illness for since, like, September with Sheffield. So it's been unfortunate. I don't not, want to recognize to speculate play. what the illness was. But, yes, it's, uh, I know that he's been been out for a minute. That's unfortunate. But yeah, this is how we discover dudes like Lucas Poss, right? And Ken M&T Bible on Twitter. And the most like random Twitter fights between Ken M&T Bible and other Twitter users about who broke the story. And But uh, maybe they only realized from Twitter that he's a dual national, but certainly an intriguing option uh, for the Canadian men's national team moving forward, Lucas Poss. I had a personal trainer, literally a guy like works at the gym with him, slide in my DMs and say, I got a Canadian that no nobody knows about. And I asked, I text Alex and I go, who's the Canadian Swiss dual national guy? And he goes, Lucas Boss. <laughs> I reply, I'm like, yeah, Lucas Boss. He goes, oh, well, great. I'm glad people notice him. I'm like, are you his agent? He's like, no, I'm his trainer. And I look at, the, at his profile page, like at the gym. <laughs> like like the, the Swiss good life. <laughs> I was like, merci beaucoup, danke schön. I will, uh, we'll pay attention. Yeah, well, look, Lucas Boss, definitely interesting name. I bet you he's someone who might be considered for this camp just because it's like if we've seen, as we've seen, there's always seems to be room for a dual national. The last few camps has been Luke DeFougerel. Maybe Luke DeFougerel stays with his club this time. Mm-hmm. And maybe we see Lucas Poss fill that role. Um, but yeah, uh, he's it's a bit of a tough one to gauge with Lucas Poss because I, I think the Swiss League's a good level. It's just his, uh, you know, his, his Stad Lausanne team is just chewing up goals. Their last place in the league. 
they've been you know eating a lot of goals, but he's performing well despite that. Seems to be a decent passer of the ball. He's good aerially, good in the box, like on corners. Ticks off a lot of attributes you want from a potential long-term Stephen Vittoria replacement. So uh, intriguing and uh, intriguing to see uh, Lucas Poss included. It's a couple other names that stood out as Jamie Knight Lavelle. Uh, ends up stepping, uh, you know, getting called in the Bristol City youngster. I think it's cool to see him on the list. And really, other than that, it was mostly names as expected. Although uh, Stephen Afrifa, uh, you know, over at Sporting KC, looks like he could get some minutes this year. He was included, and I think that was a, a fun name that stood out. And a question from Johnny Lower: A theory going around is that the first 23 on the preliminary roster will be the ones that are called up. If true, how do you feel about that? I feel bad for Ike Ugbo and Theo Bear, Canadians playing well that should be rewarded. And if it's not just one match where everyone can play, so some new guys could come in to compete, it would be great to see a couple faces like E.K. Ugbo and Theo Bear, and I think they should be called up because, you know, when you look at that first 23 that are on the list, whether that is to be, you know, taken as the 23 or not, Ugbo, given his form, should probably be there. Theo Bear, I'm up for a discussion about, but E.K. Ugbo, I think it's almost inexcusable for him not to be there with the way that he's been banging goals in, in the championship. He's clear-cut number three for you, eh? If you're looking at form, you're, you're looking at one game. You're not looking at developing guys through a tournament, giving them experience. You need to win this fucking game. Like, it's Argentina. Like, like in that opener, it sold out yesterday. This is a game that you need your hottest players going into. It can't be, you know, maybe we can give a chance to this guy. Maybe we can get the best out of this guy. Like, you need guys that are clicking, guys that are hot. And Ike Ubo's clicking and hot in a good league. Yo, Alex, what were the odds that Ike Ugbo would be the reason that Ben forced us to put the explicit language tag on this upload? I on put Spotify? it on anyways. <laughs> Bro, I didn't even know you guys. I Do you know how much I hold back? I had no idea <laughs> y'all were comfortable with F-bombs. I'm just, I, I'll, I'll drop them every once in a while. And so, so Ben, it's, it's one of those, it's context, right? It's not like. You're not going to be just dropping F-bombs. But yeah, yeah, when E.K. Ugo is bagging goals and there's questions if he's not going to get called in, yeah, it's definitely one where uh, you can understand the the tensions. And I think that's really, I think the big question mark with this squad, is it going to be form? Is it going to be veterans? Look, as I said six months ago, or even four months ago when Bielo kind of came in, it made sense to start with veterans, right? Like that's what he was comfortable with. That's what he knows. But when the veterans struggle for you, in those games he's played, so or they've played under Biello, when a lot of those veterans are struggling at club level, at a certain point, you got to be like, look, are you watching them in these scenarios? Are you giving chances to to, to those faces who are playing well, who do deserve to, to to shine? And yeah, at the moment, that's Ike Ubo, nine goals and an assist in the championship this year, despite playing for you know a mid-table Cardiff and a bottom-dwelling uh, Wednesday. Theo Bear, he's, you know, he's not getting many touches a game in Scotland, but he's scoring for fun. Ten goals, four assists in the Scottish Premiership. He deserves a look. Heck, you look across the roster, there's lots of names. Like, what's it going to take for Joel Waterman, Lucas McNaughton to get looks at the back as they continue to shine for Montreal and, and Nashville, right? Like, there's just guys who deserve a look. Theo Corbiano had such a great half of the season with Grasshopper and now is in La Liga. These guys deserve looks, and I think that's the frustrating thing is that we're sitting here being like, most of those guys I mentioned probably won't be, and it'll probably be the usual of Vittoria, Borian, uh, Cavallini, which again, I'll say that, I said it then, I'll say it again. Those guys, if they're in form, 100% deserve to be in contention for the squad. You want your best 23 there, like Ben mentioned, but also you want your most deserving 23, and you're at a point where you don't need to call in 
Cavallini and a Borean and a Vittoria for leadership because Borean doesn't come in. Crepo's 29 and he's been with this program for over a half decade. Could you not lean on that sort of leadership in goal? You go at the back. Kamal Miller has been with this national team for four or five years. Derek Cornelius has been with this national team for four or five years. Eustachio in the midfield, you know, essentially feels like he's already become one of the captains of this team. Alfonso Davies has been with the program since 2017, even though he's so young. You don't think you can trust him to step up. I think that leadership ship is kind of sailed, and it's it's unfortunate that you're sitting here thinking, well, all the veterans are going to get called in when, again, it's a one-off game. Call up your informed players. And just bring Daniel Henry to be on the touchline. Just to have him next tomorrow. Like he's got to be in the room to pump the guy. Let him control the music on the bus so everything's good. And we'll jump into a quick MLS recap as well. Orlando City and CF Montreal got their season started with a nil-nil draw and another nil-nil draw between FC Cincinnati and Toronto FC. And I think hitting Toronto FC. Uh, a pretty promising debut against a good FC Cincinnati side. Not the same one that went out to win the Supporters' Shield last year. But TFC looked good, and they came away with uh, some nice finds as well. I would go so far to say, man, TFC looked great for stretches. Mind you, there were we weren't expecting a lot, and guys are still learning each other's names. Uh, Richie no, maybe knows almost everybody, but I'm pretty sure that uh, there's quite a few guys in that room that are, are still learning names and shouting up by boot colors. But I did not think that Davey Flores was going to play like that. He's a very different player from the one that played for the Whitecaps, as you guys know. I thought there was a, a lot of guys that stood out. Um, Richie made the impact that we've all expected to see. But to be honest, I didn't think that was going to be the case, given how um, his season finished in Vancouver, given how torrid his uh, offseason was and all the uncertainty I'm sure there was, the mental toll that. But, man, you can tell he's just so comfortable. Uh, Oso looked looked super calm. And the Italians looked inspired, man, and you're going to need that for the season. So. Yeah, all in all, um, you know, I'm, I'm. Uh, you can tell there was a lot of fight in this team, which I'm not surprised by, and uh, it's resulted in some fines and some. Yeah, it sounds like there's some dog in this TFC team here, as uh, Brendan, of course, deals with some dog on his end. So oh, kind of fitting that. My bad, guys. Let's <laughs> say it's fitting. You're talking about this dog that they're showing, and you get some barking in the background. You know, to shout out to to, to Percy back in the day when he'd uh, he'd bark for uh, for the dog. Um, but yes, uh, no, I agree. That was a big thing that stood out was the guts, the performance, right? Like to play Federico Bernadeschi at wing back on the road against the defending supporters shield winners. And, you know, you keep Luke Joe Acosta quiet for most of the game. You keep Cincinnati relatively out of dangerous areas. You have some chances of your own. I think that's all very encouraging because look, there's a lot of good about this team. We mentioned in our previous, it's still a talented team. Depth is a concern. Yes, that number nine position is a concern. And certainly this game didn't alleviate that concern of what's going to happen at the nine. But I think the big things you want to see after the last few years from Toronto's perspective were structure, organization, and a commitment to want to fight for each other. I think they showed a lot of that. And I think guys that brought in like Loray, you know, he's going to fight for his teammates. He didn't miss a beat in that regard. Flores showed that he has a bit of that, that knife's edge in the midfield, you know, like, Playing with the knife between his teeth, he kind of has that from his Honduras time, but he also brought a little quality, a little, you know, some, some great passing. I think all of those was, was really positive to see. So building off that, I think if you're TFC, heck, if you, you might not make the playoffs doing this all year long, right? You're going to maybe lose some games, whatnot. But if you're going to at least have this structure, I think you have to be very encouraged by what this might mean for 2025, for example. It's one game, but I mean... To play like that against a team that everyone's expecting to 
challenge for the supporters shield again. Although to be honest, I don't think that they're as good as they were last season, but they're one of the best in the Eastern conference. Um, yeah, they can string this, uh, a few performances like this together and, and play like that for the majority um, of the night or the afternoon against New England and then against Charlotte. Man, who knows? Like a strong start to the season, all of a sudden you change the confidence levels, you change the mindset, you change the perspective, and your your goals can change on the fly. Um, we know that Herdman came in and said, look, no one thinks we're going to make the playoffs, so let's go and do it. And if they the team buys into it with some performances like that, man, I think they could. I said they'd finish ninth. That was my prediction I wrote on Waking the Red. I think they'll finish ninth. So it's 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 possible. All they have to do is sneak in. The playoffs, as we know, are you know a big picture sort of thing in MLS now that you know you can sneak into that playing game and, and really make an impact from there. Um, that I wouldn't be surprised if if TFC do, and certainly encouraging to see that performance against FC Cincinnati. And I, I think that's something that they can definitely build on as well moving forward. Um, but one other point that I, I did want to touch on was Federico Bernadeschi, a bit of a different role for him. He played wing back, and it seemed like he did well in that role, even maybe a little bit less running at defenders uh, than he might have been used to last year with TFC. Yeah, it was a good balance for role. I think it's it worked for, uh, you know, what, what Herdman has done with the national team, where you kind of have these flexible back threes in possession, back fours out of it. I think that helped a lot because Shane O'Neill was kind of shifting over to right back to kind of cover underneath Bernadeschi. And I think it was good because it was a mix of you got him engaged defensively, you got him tracking back, which he didn't always do in the 4-3-3 last year, but he also still got to go forward, cut inside, had a few good opportunities. So it was a bit of a bold call, but again, it's I think it's something where tactically, as long as your rotations are on point, as long as Shane O'Neill is able to, to provide that cover at, at right center back, uh, you know, Petret also did a, a big job at left center back. Um, Kevin Long as well in the middle there. I think it's something where you're allowed to play. Richie Larea is so good at dropping deep into uh, in, into that left back role. It was bold, but uh, I think it'll be it'll be curious to see how this evolves. I think that was one of the big questions uh, I I kind of you know had from the preseason. Like, okay, is it going to be Bernadeschi and Singe both underneath the striker, which is fine, um, but it was just at the time the wing back position. You know, you had Larea, you had, you had Franklin. Look, it's going to be tough because this potentially means Franklin goes on the bench a bit more. But if this allows you to add another attacker in, this could maybe help TFC uh, score a bit more, right? Like gets you a Kerr on the field, you know, gets you a, another midfielder. I think that that sort of flexibility could pay off. And hey, well, we'll I'm sure hopefully we can see a lot of minutes for a Franklin and whatnot anyways. I didn't know how long they were going to hold that with Bernadeschi playing in that role. I thought that he was going to drift in, that they were going to adjust. And for the majority of his time on the pitch, he wouldn't actually be be playing as a, a two-way wingback but i think that and what i like is herdman did this against a team that it could have if it could have gone spectacularly wrong and um but he believes in it and wants it to go right so he's he's it was a baptism by fire it was like a, it was a tough test and i think it will be circumstantial I don't, it's not going to work against uh, every single team um but that's a team that if it wasn't going to work um you would have seen very quickly and uh, and it, it looked okay. So yeah, I think it'll be circumstantial. Um, he's obviously learning that role, and O'Neill's learning probably his tendencies in front of him. And who knows? You know, it's it's about O'Neill staying at the top of his game too. I think that's a much bigger role than he'd anticipated. There are opposition that we know are going to look to exploit that uh, scenario. But from from the start, like Herdman wants to see more um, from these guys, and and Bernadeschi says he's he's game and he's all bought in. And to me, that that showed it on Sunday. 
TFC also not done in transfers either. They added Matty Longstaff from Newcastle today. Uh, certainly an intriguing, certainly an intriguing ad for TFC, considering you know the increased price of players from England generally, um, and also a player that has struggled with ACL injuries over the last little while, and that's something that has also plagued TFC. So it could be a good signing, but I think there's a lot of asterisks next to this signing. It feels low risk to me. And it's like, if it works out, great. If it doesn't work, like, you're not bringing this guy in as a DP. Uh, you're bringing this guy in when you already have, like, an idea of what your midfield's going to look like as opposed to building around him. And I think it's an opportunity for him to prove himself, and here's a guy who wants to prove himself. He was out of contract. He was a free agent. He only got 14, made 14 appearances for Newcastle, even though we all probably merge him and his brother together and feel like he's played 100 times. That's I did. Uh, when I saw the stat today and waking the red that he'd only played 14 times for Newcastle, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. That, that can't be real. Really? That's it. Um, but I just assumed that, you know, it wouldn't take long for a Jordy connection to arise with Herdman here at TFC. I just always hope to be Shola Emiobi. I think, uh, <laughs> I think Matty Longstaff's going to have a bigger impact though. I said, maybe this is Mandela effect. I'm like, I swear I've, if, if it's 14 games that Matty Longstaff's played, I feel like I've watched four of them for Newcastle. I don't watch many <laughs> Newcastle games. So it's like maybe there is a bit of a Mandela effect where you just, you're just you so used to always seeing a Longstaff out there. And there were a few times where they did play together, uh, to be fair, which was always cool. But look, I think this is good because, Brendan, we sat here and talked last week in our TFC preview. My big concern is depth. And I think I think midfield was one of the areas we highlighted yeah. in terms of that depth. And it's midfield depth. You're not asking him to come in and be a starter. If he is, great. But, you know, of course, he's coming off ACL injuries. You can get him up to speed and you know that, okay, for now, it's it's Flores, it's an Azorio, it's some of those other names ahead of him. That allows him just to, to take his time. And it's one of those low-risk signings where, hey, maybe in six months this end, ends up being like, you know, some of these these guys come in six months, they're gone, or he ends up finding his feet in MLS, and uh, that's what he needs. So overall, it it ticks off one of those big needs for TFC. I think you're looking at you were looking at this team a week ago, you know, after the Larea signings and the eight million center backs they've signed. Big areas were midfield depth, a number nine. They ticked off midfield depth. I'm sure, they could still get some more, and you got to keep looking for that number nine. I think I know who it might be. By the way, for the summer. I don't think he'd do it, but I bet you they're having phone calls. This is just wildly speculating. This is just me trying to think like John Herdman. I bet you he's talking to Theo Bear, saying, "Hey, what are you thinking? Like, what do you, what, what do you, do you need more minutes? Do you need more places? Like, what do you, what are you thinking? How do you want to elevate your game? You think Europe's the best play place? What about playing between these two European champions? How about that?" See, I would have put five bucks that so you're about to spit out Lucas Cavallini's name. Your <laughs> I thought that too. I thought that too. <laughs> I thought that too. I thought that that's where it was coming. But nope. uh, yeah, no, you surprised me with something I liked a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> Every now yeah, and then I, mean, I surprise look. you, boys. Every now and then. Because <laughs> I know, look, for, for, you know, for Bear's perspective at his age, you wonder if he's going to keep giving out a crack with Europe, especially because I think 10 goals, four assists for Motherwell. There might be some teams in the championship that look at that because I know that there's a lot of championship sides that look at Scotland because, you know, the players in Scotland are usually used to the physicality. Um, so I know it's a bit of a transistory league. Maybe he looks somewhere else in Europe. So I, I wonder from Bear's perspective – you know what he might be thinking but yeah look if the if herdman pushes the right buttons it, it could be something where they, they they definitely look at it and look that's the 
I don't know if that's that exact player, but that's the profile they should look for because Bears good at stretching defenses, getting in behind. There's a reason why out of the nines that TFC's had over the last year, DeAndre Kerr's looked the best. He's good at stretching defenses. So even if it's not Bear, I think that sort of profile of number nines who, who can who can do that sort of running in behind would be a huge asset to, to look at anyways. I like the idea. I really did think that you were going to go with uh, Kendall Minty veteran uh, Lucas Cavallini to come back to MLS and see out his career with Toronto FC and John Herdman. But jumping over to CF Montreal and their nil-nil draw with Orlando City, a pretty good debut uh, for CF Montreal after a bit of a struggling last season when they were transitioning away from the likes of Alistair Johnston, Ishmael Kone, Jordi Mihailovic. And I like what I saw from Montreal, but I do think that there's a lot of room to grow, especially against the Orlando City side that didn't necessarily play Calvary off the park uh, in a lot of ways. And CF Montreal, you'd hope, would go up a little bit better than Calvary. They did go up better, but not sort of significantly, I thought. No, I don't know. What, I think. Yeah, what were you expecting oh, from, from Montreal? Yeah, I was expecting more from Montreal. Maybe it's just the new coach bump um, that I was kind of expecting to start the season. But I, I expected I think, a little I bit more. The guys didn't look like they hate each other. They looked like they were on the same page for True. the majority of the game, like 80 minutes. They looked like they had a, a game plan. They looked like they, they looked comfortable. That's a huge manager bump, man. It, it just didn't seem to me that the, the team had sort of the flow that you would expect from them. Um, but maybe that's, you know, early season. They haven't played a ton of uh, minutes together. It's still a new new coach bump, but it didn't seem they necessarily had as well as that same fight or that dog in them that uh, that TFC had, um, even though, you know, not not a new coach bump. But uh, uh, for TFC, of course, there was some headlines that said that was Herdman's first game. Wasn't. But, um, yeah, I was expecting, I don't know, just a little bit more from Montreal. It seemed kind of flat for a lot of it. Yeah, Alex, how many times does he does he go Matt Turner here? You know, he got that dog in him. He just he, he ain't got that dog in the fight. <laughs> it was something that, that we started with Peter. I, we, we used to record this with uh, with Percy, my my little dog, um, on my lap or or in Alex's arms. Alex with a beer, Percy sprawled over his shoulder, uh, and whenever we would say dog, Percy would go, ruff, 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 ruff. and uh, he, he we, we, we we had that in the uh, the podcast for a little while, but no longer. <laughs> Well, to hop in on here, though, I will jump in and say I feel like this is incredibly harsh on Montreal. So I will, I will, uh, you know, back Brendan in that regard because this Orlando team's good. I think people don't realize this with the cavalry discussion. With in this, for me, my money, I think Orlando is a top two, top three team in the East because I think it's Cincinnati yeah. at the top, uh, and then after them, like it's the crew and it's Orlando. I think those are your big three this year. I think. Of course, you can't discount some of the other teams like Atlanta making a bit of a resurgence. Um, you, you know, there's a, a few other teams in that East Miss Philadelphia Union will always be competitive in that in that mix. But Orlando, for my money, is a top three team in the East. Just look at the lineup they put out there against Montreal. Facundo Torres could be an MLS MVP. They had Nico Ladero, who's still finding his feet with his new club. And Gula was fun to watch. Duncan McGuire scored 13 goals last year as a rookie. Um, Galese is might be a top three goalkeeper in this league. He's always so underrated. Like yeah. there's a, this is a good Orlando team. I didn't even mention Luis Muriel, who you know wasn't even in the squad. He finally got to play against Cavalry and look like Luis Muriel, which is going to be a problem when he figures himself out. And they'll have him and Maguire to to throw up front. No, this Orlando team was good. So for Montreal, I thought it was very huge to keep a clean sheet. That's the big thing. Jonathan Sirwa, Mister Clean Sheet himself, yet. What was it like 14? I think it was last year, 12. 
Uh, and now he goes out and gets his first one in game one, made some big stops. That back three, Joel Waterman really had a big game in that that back three. Him and Corbo have some good understanding. Bit of hairier moments for George Campbell, but they held on, did the job. Samuel Piet put in a big defensive shift, uh, yep. which was nice to see. Um, overall, and the big standout for me was Matias Kokoro. That guy's going to be a fan favorite. He just wins fouls. He's so good at bringing down these long balls that were getting sent to him, even though he's like 5'9", 5'10". He's just got this brain to him to, 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 to bring down the balls with the back to goal, to play as others, to create shots for himself. Really, the only thing, I've, if I were to nitpick anything about Montreal, it just felt like there are a few moments where they could have held onto the ball more, gotten it out wide, been a bit more incisive and, you know, a bit more deadly in their final third. But I thought other than that, they played two or they played a really good game in their own third and that middle third of the pitch in this one. Montreal fans love their South American players. And I think Kakaro is going to quickly become a fan favorite. And the fact that he didn't leave with a, a broken leg after like this heinous challenge um, was, was a victory in itself for Montreal. Um, Sirwa was incredible. I love that he's he took those gloves last year from Pentamus and kept them. And, uh, you know, he should get uh, a Canada look um, in the very, very near future. Uh, another great Canadian-produced goalkeeper that uh, we, we continue to roll out off the assembly line, it seems like. Um, and I like the way overall that they they went up against the team, as you highlighted, is, is in my opinion, man, they're, like, they're better than Cincinnati. Without Vasquez, of those three teams, it's Columbus-Orlando, and that's 1-1-A. One one to me so montreal man the, for a team that missed the playoffs because they couldn't draw games last year to take a to take a, a a point off of orlando to start things off like much like herdman courtois will be very very happy that um his team showed the way that they did they might they might raise their own expectations not the only orlando talking point we have this week as well in the Concacaf champions cup cavalry was eliminated 6-1 on aggregate after losing 3-0 at home on vancouver island cavalry fell 3-1 in leg two as orlando scored early meyer bevan responded with cavalry's first ever Concacaf goal but then it was pretty much all orlando and they didn't really seem to get to a point where they didn't have control of this tie but meyer bevan creates history for cavalry first continental goal i think there's a lot the cavalry can learn from this they kind of had a baptism by fire in terms of just the eventual aggregate scoreline of this one. They never really seemed too much in it, you know, for points maybe on Vancouver Island, they seemed in it, but that game as well was played at a slow pace. Neither team really looked to be sharp. And this was almost a last tune up for Orlando before they got going in MLS. Yeah, this was all Orlando and look for Calvary was some important lessons because Orlando just showed the ruthlessness of some of these top teams, right? Like we're talking about a top MLS team, because it's true, you can mention Cavalry has experience playing MLS teams. Heck, they beat one in the, in the Whitecaps in 2019. But yeah, arguably, example, they were an MLS quality team at that time. Arguably, they were MLS level. Well, that's what I was going to say. At the time, the Whitecaps were about to finish what it was like bottom three in MLS that year, bottom four. This Orlando team's probably going to finish top five in MLS, uh, at least if on in expectations. That's a different level. Heck, you know, it's it's different level to play the Whitecaps these days, which would be interesting. Cavalry can do that in the Canadian Championship, of course, which we'll we'll get to. But I think because that was a true test of how ruthless it is, because I think it's something where Cavalry had moments, right? They had some chances in the first leg. They got some. They didn't take it. And what was wild about Orlando is just every half chance they had turned into a goal. But that's what happens when you have Facundo Torres, right? That's what happened. We have Nico Ladero in the one-touch goal he scored in leg two. That's what happened. We have Luis Muriel in that second leg. Just looks so dangerous every time he got on the ball. Uh, you know, all, 
just if that's what happens when you have quality. And I think it was a good learning lesson for Cavalry. And it's when they want it. Tommy Wilden Jr. mentioned that he was like, look, we could have gone out, parked the bus, maybe scrape. We maybe we lose two, three nil on aggregate and save some face that way, but we wouldn't have learned anything. Yeah, he knows his cavalry side. If they go out and play that way, they can keep it competitive, but they might not compete. So he's like, you know what? Screw it. Let's play aggressive. Let's get punched in the face a couple of times. Because you know what? Sometimes the best way to learn how to not get punched in the face is to take that, to know how it feels. Like, okay, that's that's the speed that these punches are coming in. This is how these teams hurt you. This is where they're going to try to exploit us. Uh, so again, I think for Cavalry in this case, yes, it's certainly tough to see an aggregate score like that. It's hard to sit here and be like, oh yeah, it was competitive over the tie. But I think long-term, if Cavalry can take this, put it into their season, qualify next year and learn some lessons, I think it could pay off uh, pay off down the road. So it's one of those, again, where it's a bit of a moral victory. And of course, you'd love to sit here and talk about more than moral victories. But with how it is, the CPL just really starting to get teamed into this competition with the disadvantage that they'll always have of, you know, being smack in the middle of their offseason while these teams are either ramping up for their seasons or in the middle of it. It makes it tough. But, you know, these are the sorts of lessons that maybe I'll suck now to be getting battered like this. But maybe if it pays off three, four years down the road, that's what counts, right? And, of course, there was one Canadian MLS team that didn't hit the pitch this weekend, that being the Vancouver Whitecaps. They get set to debut their 2024 season, their 50th anniversary season, this weekend against Charlotte FC. They released their kit. Everything's coming together. They've got massive ticket sales for this first game, uh, which was included in the messy four-game pack as well. And it's a huge season ahead for this team, considering where they got to last season, the regular season. The goal this year, I think, can be MLS Cup with the way that this team is stuck together. And I think it is a team that is deserving to have those lofty goals, uh, even though they're missing their manager for the first six games of the season. Yeah, look, it's a huge season for the Whitecaps. I mean, look, I've, you know, I followed a bit closer. I'm out here in the market and get, get a chance to see it up close, but it does feel like something's brewing. And um, it's really, it feels like a, not a make or break, because I think what's nice is they've positioned themselves with the Galt, Ryan Gold extension. Andres Kubas is now around long-term. Benny Sartini's set up. There's a bit of worry heading into this year. There'd be a last dance type situation where Gold would have been up at the end of the year. There's all these question marks. And I think what's nice is you look at their most important seven or eight players. They're all locked into at least next year as well. But this feels like this should be their this should be a chance where they at least show their elite. Maybe they don't win an MLS Cup this year. They don't win a Supporter Shield this year. But they flirt for both of those and show that, yes, we can be in that elite crop. We're not just going to be a team that shows signs of being able to play at that level, but in the end finishes 13th in all of MLS and then maybe loses in the first round of the playoffs. Because uh, they definitely have the roster that, at the bare minimum, this is a team that should be finishing top six, top five in the West. They've got an MVP-type player in Ryan Gold. They've got a striker in Brian White. Guys like Pedro Vite and Ali Ahmed can be game breakers. They've seemed to find some stability at the back. Like Andres Kubas, for my money, one of the best number six in the league. All the pieces are there. They still need a few additions, I think, to tinker around the edges of the roster to really help them become an elite team. But I think that baseline is already there. Yeah, all of the guys returning, I think, are you know, a step better than last year or, or ready to take their, their game to a new level. And for Gold and White, like, that's scary for everybody that has to deal with them. And I think the addition of Demir Krylak, I know, you know, two legs against Tigres isn't uh, a ton of a, a big sample size, but you could see how in that first leg, especially out at Starlight, it really took like a matter of minutes before he seemed to like clock in like, oh, okay, this is the level. All right. Now I know how to contribute to you guys and, and uh, 
uh, you can provide for me and I'll provide for you. And I think that that's exactly what they thought they were getting last year with Sergio Cordova that didn't happen. And to get it with Krylak and a guy who knows the league, like that to me is what puts them over the top and puts them into a, a you know, a, a top Western contending spot. I don't know if, you know, MLS Cup, let's be honest, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if they make the semifinals. Like they're, they're I think they're complete enough um, despite, you know, the, uh, the gap in, in salary that they have to a lot of other teams that would be contending at the top of that, uh, at the top of that conference. Um, I like them, man. I wouldn't, the only other player you didn't mention, Alex, that, that I really like, uh, there's two actually, uh, Veselinovic is a guy that I don't think gets enough credit in MLS. He's a guy I would not want to have to deal with, uh, as a, uh, co-ed league seven V seven forward. I'd have no chance, uh, putting the ball in the back of the net. If that guy was, uh, on my opposition team. And I think that uh, another year um, or his uh, first full season under his belt and uh, fully acclimatized now, I think Yohei Takaoka can be one of the best goalkeepers in, in MLS too. Like he, he's a top 10 MLS goalkeeper in, in, my, in my books. They got themselves a, a good international experienced guy who, uh, who bailed them out a lot and won a lot of draws, won a lot of points last year. So um, they can feel pretty confident with him between the sticks again. I think there's also a point for Takoka to take a step forward now that he has a year of experience in MLS under his belt. Can he develop into an elite goalkeeper in MLS? And I think that's a question mm-hmm. that really surrounds the the Whitecaps as well. Can they be an elite side this season? They were a good side. Some would even say they were a great side last year, but can they be the elite of the elite in MLS from game one to game 34 and into the playoffs? Yeah, that's huge. And I think Takoka. I think Matias Laborda, who's had looked excellent in that Champions Cup tie. I think Renko Veselinovic, Tristan Blackman, heck, Bjorn Inge Utvik. Those are going to be some of the guys that make the biggest difference. Because I think what was key is we saw this offense could be elite. They can generate chances at an elite right. They can play great football. There, There is a bit of a question, can they finish those chances? But that's a whole other story. Uh, although White and Gold showed that when they got hot, they could. But for me, the biggest difference between last year between them being a good or great team to an elite team was that defensive line. They just were a bit too sloppy on crosses, on set pieces. Their defensive numbers weren't as good as they could be. But what's nice is there's room to improve. Laborda, I think last year was a lot of learning, and he looks already like he's taken under his belt and is ready to, to shine. That's huge. Another year of Veselinovic, another year of Blackman. That's, you know, Victor under the mix can learn on the fly. Great. Taco is a huge one as well because – for all of the you know the good and all the struggles, he ended up being pretty much a league average goalkeeper, and that was fine. That helped the Whitecaps take a step forward. But yeah, if you can take that that step, knowing that he knows what the travel is like, he knows what the physicality is like, which can be tough for a smaller goalkeeper. Uh, he definitely has the technical skills. I, I agree with Brendan in that regard uh, to 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 take a step forward. I think that would also be a, a huge thing to bank on if you're the Whitecaps. What has to go right for the Whitecaps this season to get everything, you know, the way that they're setting their standards? You can put all these players that need to take a step. You can look at the roster and say it's all locked up, but what needs to go right? Is it something where everything has to fall their way for things to go right? Or do they have a little bit of wiggle room with the amount of talent they have on the roster? Consistency, I think, has been their problem when they've been close before. You can argue on paper that this isn't isn't the best team that they've had, um, I think. And, you know... Um, in the past when they've been close or when you think like they're going to make a run that one or two years under Carl Robinson where they were, uh, they looked poised to do something in the playoffs. Um, they weren't consistent throughout. So for me, that would be the biggest difference this season, Alex. Yeah, I love that because I have this stat I've picked up last year. They, in, uh, I think in all comps, but definitely in MLS, 
They never won more than two games in a row. They never lost more than two games in a row last year. They were consistently inconsistent, that they would never rattle off four, five, six wins, and they would never rattle off four, five, six losses. While, while that's good, because that allowed them to make the playoffs, to be a top team, you know how to you need to know how to turn, you know, some of those draws into wins and you know, losses into draws. And I think that's the big thing I want to see from this team is ruthlessness. Cause I think they showed that they can play good football. They can compete with any team. Those two things are great, but now they need to show that they can be ruthless in those games. So there's too many times last year where they would play an opponent off the park and it would end at a draw, right? Or they'd go they would end with the loss, especially on the road, but also sometimes at home where they're usually been so dominant. They took a bit of a slip back last year. I'd like to see them be more ruthless and hecky. If you're going to play well for 80 minutes, win. Because I know it's soccer. You can play great for 90. You can play great for 89 minutes. You play bad for one, you can lose the game. That's the nature of the sport. And I feel like if the Whitecaps can be more ruthless, that's going to be the huge difference. Because they play great soccer. They they compete with everyone, but they need that ruthlessness. I think to Ben's point, like what has to go right to make this different? Um, they have to be dominant at home. They have to have one of the, if not the best home record. Like you have to take that space to like, the max like take full advantage of that because every team coming in there hates playing you and like you know that pitch and every corner of it better than everybody else like you have to win all of those games there you you can't afford to to take uh single points and, and draw those matches uh, at home i really think that the whitecaps need to have one of the best home records in all of major league soccer for them to to uh to be potential semifinalists and and challenges this year Awesome. They get a good boost with that too. as well. And they get a good boost with that as well with the amount of ticket sales that they've had. Over 25,000 expected for the opener. I think they've opened part of the upper bowl as well. Um, there you go. I'm a little bit concerned in terms of the actual attendance because I think there's a lot of folks out there who bought that four pack that had the messy game in it and aren't going to go to the other, other three games. But I'm hopeful that at least for the opener, they will pack the crowd uh, similar to the way that the way that they did uh, against LAFC in the playoffs. And then, you know, that, that messy game, it's going to be incredible uh, to see well, these place packed. Good time of year, early March, right? You've probably got some hardcore skiers that uh, are already done for the season. They're not that interested. And you've got uh, outdoors people who aren't uh, up the mountain who are like, oh, no, we're not, uh, the weather's not nice enough to be outside. So we can, we can sit in a stadium. It's th- when the weather is nice that attendance will be a problem. Between between May and September, they can worry about there not being enough butts and seats. That's a Vancouver problem, it seems. It definitely is because there's too many things to do uh, in the nice weather that sitting inside an indoor stadium as well. Um, people don't necessarily want to do that during the the nice summer months, and that's you know probably one of the only markets out there that actually sees attendance dip in the summer rather than increase. It's the biggest, smallest sports town. On the continent, it's not a sports town; it's an event town. I think we can get into that another time. But Vancouver, when it supports a sports team, it you know the Canucks is an anomaly, but it only supports when it comes to an event. You know, you're not getting a crowd out for Game 15 of the MLS season, a significant crowd that is. You're not getting you know Game Eight of the CFL season. You're not getting you know significant crowds for. Um, but when you get an event, you get people out for whether it's rugby sevens that that get a, a massive attendance or you know the, the world cup that's going to be an anomaly as well but the city will get up for that it's very much an event town uh and not necessarily a sports town and that's why some teams don't work that's why you know i think vancouver fc will always have struggles because it's not a sports town it's an event town yeah 
Well, that, that's a to add to the point about the Whitecaps, the last one on this preview, that also shows why they need to have a good start. Because the last couple of years, they've had slow starts and always finished strong, which, you know, it's fine. You make the playoffs. But I think if you have a good start, create some buzz. You saw with the Canucks this year, they got off to a hot start, top the NHL. People were talking about him again after a couple of years, like, ah, this team's going nowhere, not rebuilding. The Whitecaps need to get off to a hot start. So if all of a sudden people can realize, oh, this team's competing for a supporter's shield, they're actually near the top, I think people will start showing up a lot earlier too because it felt like last year, again, they got hot at the end. Some new Canadian signings came in. People are like, okay, like, let's take interest. I think getting off to a hitting the ground running would go go a long way, especially, you know what? Win the home opener. If there's, if there's people going to be there in the uh, in the upper bowl, if it's going to be one of your top crowds ever, the Whitecaps have always struggled in those sorts of big games where they're, they're setting attendance records. Win, score two or three goals, send the fans home happy. That will also get some more bums and seats when people realize, like, oh, this is a really different Whitecaps team. I think that that's also an important factor in the in the messy game as well as you know send the fans home with a bit of a impression of what the Whitecaps are and make that a good impression. But Vancouver Whitecaps getting their season start against Charlotte FC this weekend at BC Place. But not the last note on our podcast that being the Canadian Championship draw. Closed door draw was completed for the Canadian Championship, determining the one game preliminary round matches, as well as the two legged quarterfinals and what they could look like. Calvary will go up against Vancouver FC with the winner playing the Whitecaps, who get a bye, being the defending champions. Pacific will play the Victoria Highlanders in a bit of a BC Vancouver Island derby, while Atletico Ottawa will play Valor with the winner facing each other in the quarterfinals. Forge will play York United in a 905 derby with the winner playing CF Montreal, who get a bye after making the final last season. And lastly, TFC will host the Simcoe County Rovers, while the Halifax Wonders will host CS St. Laurent with the winners playing each other. And that Simcoe County versus TFC game, I think it's going to be electric. Um, I was hoping that we would see um Avon Azuri versus TFC game because I think you you then get all of you know Vaughn Woodbridge all the Italians coming out to to TFC and how cool would it be to see Vaughn Azuri go up against uh the likes of Insigne and Bernadeschi but seeing Simcoe County Rovers um being the first league one side to take on an MLS side um that's gonna be a fun watch can they call Jules back and they let Jules coach that game just for like just for a day needs to be coached for a day yeah that's that's that to me would be worth it uh, uh, like great experience. I'm not taking anything away. Great experience for the for those kids. Great experience for TFC too. That's going to play against them. But um, I want Jules to coach that team for a day. I'd love to see it. Well, I think it, I think it's great too that it's Simcoe. I just want to say because they're a model club in League One. What's fun fact? This is their third season. They're about to head into, and they've already got a date with Toronto FC in the Canadian Championship. They've already won a title in League One Ontario. They've got. Their ownership group, like Julian de Guzman, I think he's you know one of the main owners. And then you got you know like said Daniel Henry, Atiba Hutchinson, Janine Becky, have all invested in this this ownership project. I think this is, it shows what League One can be about investing in that grassroots football, growing that side of the game. So win or lose, I think it's super exciting that for one game they're going to get a platform uh, against a, a top club like TFC to to show what they're all about in that environment. I think that's so cool. Hundred percent. They've set the bar too. It's a it's an attractive project. It's it's cool. It's um yeah. I want to see more examples like that. I want to I want to see more Simcoe Rovers. I agree with you. Well, it's like the Rovers last year, right? Good theme with with yep. Rovers in this competition, like the TSS Rovers, the fan owned model. Like I'm loving that we're getting to see some of these League One clubs show their best. And that's for example for me the other matchup I love is the Highlanders. They're one of the most 
you know, historic clubs in, in BC uh, in terms of just how long they've been around, some of the talent. They've got like four or five former Highlanders on Pacific, by the way. So it's going to be a bit of a rivalry mm-hmm. uh, in that regard. I think it's super cool that a historic League One club like that, well, they of course, they've only been in League One for two years, but that they've had this history before that they also get to show themselves in the Canadian Championship is so cool. And getting into your Canucks Abroad mailbag, proudly presented by our friends over at Canucks-Abroad. Make sure to follow Canucks Abroad on socials at Canucks Abroad to keep up with all of the Canadians playing domestically and abroad. Jonathan David went 90 minutes and had an assist for Lille in a 3-1 loss to Toulouse. Stefan Estacchio went 90 for Porto in a 1-1 draw with Gio Vicente, but was an unused substitute in the Taça de Portugal action against Santa Clara as Porto won 2-1 and they advanced to the semifinals. And what's up with Estacchio with his limited playing time, even though he did go 90 minutes on the weekend? Yeah, it's been the hot topic. We've already touched on a few weeks in a row here, but it was interesting because he got the lifeline, right? He got this chance to go 90 against Gil Vicente, a big start. Um, but then, you know, by the midweek, again, he's, he's, he's dropped uh, to the bench for, for a cup game. It was a bit surprising as he thought he would be able to build off what was an overall, a, a, you know, mixed bag performance, I think, uh, against Gil Vicente. He was really good offensively, made some great late runs. I was impressed with his movement. He almost had a goal that was disallowed due to after VAR intervened or after the referee intervened for a foul. Um, but defensively, he did look a bit off the pace, which is just a bit unusual because we're so used to him being so sharp in that side of the game. I do wonder if that's the rustiness kind of catching up to him. But look, the reality is it looks like now that we know Stachio's healthy and he's kind of bouncing in and out the lineup because we're kind of wondering, was he fully fit? It just looks like Alan Varela... Uh, you know, and, and Nico Gonzalez in the midfield, a pair of 22 year olds, both signed last summer for good fees, their first choice. And I think that's, uh, that's tough now. Cause it feels like with Stacchio, he's really got to go out and knuckle down and win his spot because look, Porto's a, you know, Porto's a top club and they're a selling club. They will put out the players out there that, you know, give them the best shot at winning. But also if those guys, if possible, they'd like those guys to be younger guys they can sell on. And that's what Gonzalez and Varela are doing. So hopefully we can see Ustakio get some chances and prove that, okay, he can start over one of those guys and continue to be key in, in Concesau's pivot. Because I think it would be a real shame for him to fall out and be a rotation piece. Because as we've said, he, we it'd be from a Canadian perspective, you need him playing. Tejan Buchanan played 15 minutes in Inter Milan's 4-0 win over Lecce as he made his second appearance for the club. And Kyle Lahren went 31 minutes off the bench for Mallorca in a 1-1 draw with Alaves as he was rested for Mallorca's big game in midweek against Real Sociedad in the second leg of the Copa del Rey semifinals. He went 105 minutes in that one as Mallorca won on penalty kicks, drawing 1-1 in regular time. And they are into the cup final as well. Yeah, this is huge. I mean, look, it was... uh... (laughs) Kyle Aaron put in quite the shift cardio wise in that in the in the game itself. Didn't really get many touches, but won a lot of fouls. Was going up and down. He made a big clearance uh, in his own box uh, in in extra time. So he's putting in a shift. But look, it's huge for for Mallorca. They've made the Copa del Rey finals just three times in their history. They, the last time was 21 years ago when they won it in 0203. Fun fact: they had a, a striker by the name of Samuel Eto leading the line. That year, so how cool would it be if Kyle Lahren was the next striker to lead uh, Mallorca to some Copa del Rey glory? Because look, that's a huge competition, especially one that's typically always, you know, dominated by the likes of a Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid. Yes, over the last few years, we've seen a Betis step up. We've seen Alexis Sociedad be really competitive. 
uh, Valencia, but it's great to see a club like Mallorca get this opportunity and learn to play such a big role because I think it's such a you know historic competition, and I think it's one of those where yeah, Laren hasn't maybe been as productive in league play as as, as you as you'd like to see, but he's been so good in cup play, both when he's scoring, but even in games like this where he has to do a lot of hard work. I think it would be a nice way to really cap off this first season. Of course, you'd like to see him get hot the rest of the way and, you know, push Mayork up the table. But I think this is a, it's a really cool story. Alfonso Davies also participated in full team training for Bayern Munich this week as he nears a return from his injury, hopefully back to full health before the Trinidad and Tobago match for the Canadian men's national team. Nike Ugbo went 83 minutes and scored twice for Sheffield Wednesday in a 2-1 win over Bristol, putting up him up to nine goals on the season. And as I said earlier in the show, he has to be on the Canadian men's national team come March because he's on absolute form right now. Well, that's it. And it's the way he's scoring, like these two goals against Bristol, just pure strikers goals, right? I mentioned him being a poacher earlier, just one header just the, the, the for the winner. He glanced it in so beautifully at the near post. And then a second goal or the first goal just took the ball, cut inside and just whacked it with his left. Good instincts to show that he can score with both feet. He can score off headers. We've seen him do all of those things so far. So it's good because uh, he's that pure number nine profile we've we've talked a lot about. And he's, you know, scoring goals on a team that's fighting to get out of the relegation zone at a good level. There's zero reason why Canada can't be considering him. And uh, what one big thing I've noticed in Ugbo's game is he's shooting a lot more. He already has more shots in uh, a handful of games for Wednesday than he did at Cardiff, than he did last year for Troyes. Like, he's shooting a lot more uh, right now, and I think that's huge because he's a lethal finisher. You give him chances, he'll score, and it's nice to see him uh, being a little more active in the box. It's been a big improvement in his game. Lee Miller played 73 minutes in a 3-0 Preston win over Coventry as well. Ishmael Kone started but played just 26 minutes in a 2-1 Watford loss to Huddersfield as he was yanked early in a rare tactical change. Steve Vittoria played the full 90 minutes in a 1-1 Chavez draw with Estrella. Theo Bear went 90 for Motherwell in a 3-1 loss to Celtic on the weekend before going 89 and nabbing an assist in a 3-1 win over Livingston. And Junior Hoylett came off the bench and played 33 minutes for Aberdeen in a 2-0 loss to Kilman Rock on the weekend and then played 30 minutes off the bench in a loss to St. Johnston. Alistair Johnston is back from a head injury. He went 90 and had an assist in a 3-1 win for Celtic and then went 90 and had another assist in a 7-1 victory over Dundee. And he's back, certainly good for the Canadian men's national team. Also picked up an assist in that 7-1 victory. Yeah, a bit of a worry, right? Because you see her skull fracture, you hear head injury. Those sorts of injuries don't heal fast, and they can be a bit of a concern for the long-term career. Sounds like, you know, it was more of a jaw issue, I think it was. Uh, Johnson wore a mask for a bit of his first game and just gave it up. Tough Canadian kid that he is. Uh, and, you know, was, which was good. This was two of his best performances in a while for Celtic. I kind of, you know, slumped at times around the Champions League run for Celtic, but he looked at his best. The overlapping runs he was making, the two assists were so beautifully delivered. He was just so active on that right side. A lot of touches. When he was defensively called upon, he did the job. This is Johnson at his best. And I think it's something to watch for Canada because he started to struggle with that outside right center back role. In recent games, like that Jamaica second leg, he, he struggled a bit in that role. It'd be nice to see him play more of this outside right back, borderline right wing back role that he used to play for Montreal that he's playing now at Celtic because he's so good going forward, a, an underrated crosser of the ball. And I think it will help him defensively to be in more of those one, 1v1 one situations out wide uh, that, he, that he, he does best at versus, you know, playing center back, you're facing a little more headers, some other areas that 
you know, aren't his the best attributes in his game. So I think definitely something to keep an eye on here with Celtic. If he keeps playing and thriving in this outside right back role where he's overlapping a lot more uh, in these two games for Celtic, I think Canada should definitely uh, look at that. And Victor Latouria played 86 minutes in a 3-2 Ross County win over Livingston on the weekend before going 57 in 1-1 draw with St. Mirren. Dominic Zator went 90 and Marcus Coutinho went 72 in a 3-3 Corona Kielce draw with Legia Warsaw. They both started in Corona Kielce's Pukar Pulski quarterfinal against Jagiellona as Corona Kielce fell 2-1. Simon Coline went 68 minutes for De Grafschap in a 2-0 win over Den Bosch. And Lucas Cavallini played 45 minutes in a 2-0 Puebla loss to Kertaro. Mo Farsi went 50 minutes and won a penalty before coming off with an injury, while Jason Russell Rowe went 74 minutes as the Columbus crew began their MLS Cup defense with a 1-0 win over Atlanta United. James Pantamis, Kamal Miller, and Zach McGraw all went 90 minutes for Portland, while Moise Bambito went 90 minutes for the Colorado Rapids as the Timbers beat the Rapids to win 4-1. I'd imagine Maxime Crapo becomes the starter there in just short order. Liam Fraser went 83 in a 2-1 FC Dallas win over the San Jose Earthquakes, while Michael Baldissimo had six minutes off the bench for the Earthquakes. Zorhan Basong went 17 minutes, and Steven Arfifa went 32 in Sporting KC's 1-1 draw with the Houston Dynamo. Dane Sinclair went 90 for Minnesota United, while Tani Oluwesi came off the bench and played 22 minutes, getting an assist on the winning goal in a 2-1 victory over Austin FC. And Lucas McNaughton went 90, and Jacob Schaffberg went 70 in a nil-nil draw between Nashville and the New York Red Bulls on the weekend. Then Schaffberg started and scored while McNaughton came off the bench in midweek as they defeated Mocha to advance in the CONCACAF Champions Cup. That's all we've got on episode 156 of Northern Football for this week. We'll be back next week, hopefully talking about a Canada-USA semifinal at the CONCACAF W Gold Cup as well as a Whitecaps victory. Lots to cover every week in Canadian soccer. And we'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening.